Amen. Amen. What a joy it is to gather together and to sing God's praises, to just feel small as we sing something like, you will reign forever and let your glory fill the earth. We just want to decrease and let God increase and let our vision of him, our love for him, our understanding of him increase. So thank you, Luke, and the rest of the team for leading us this morning and just giving us um, kind of an on-ramp into what we want to uh, talk about this morning in Daniel chapter 4. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. The year was 1715. King Louis XIV had died. He had reigned over France for 72 years, the longest of any European king at that time, and he was by all rights a magnificent monarch. It was uh, Louis XIV who made that famous statement, I am the state, I'm greater than everything. His court, the Palace of Versailles, was the most popular uh, attraction site, the most spectacular palace in Europe. His reign was the most spectacular reign in Europe. He would call himself Louis the Great. He gave himself that title, I am great, I am Louis the Great. When he died, his funeral was intentionally designed to be spectacular. His body was placed into a golden coffin. He was laid uh, in Notre Dame Cathedral, and before his death, he had prescribed exactly how it would all be staged. In that cathedral, there would be one single candle placed on top of his coffin, and every other candle in the cathedral blown out so that you would see one candle on top of one coffin, a golden coffin, to show this man is spectacular and to get your vision and your attention focused on his greatness. Thousands attended the service. Many were weeping. Others were stunned in hushed silence. King Louis had asked uh, the, the man who was in charge, the priest, the preacher in charge of that court to deliver the funeral sermon. His name was Mazatlan, and he uh, gave the funeral sermon uh, over King Louis's body. But before he did, as he stepped into that pulpit and he walked past the coffin, he looked at that single candle, he snuffed it out, and he famously began that sermon by saying, only God is great. Only God is great. That's the whole point of Daniel chapter 4. Only God is great. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is great because he is king over the entire known world at that time. And yet this dream that he has received is telling him, you're not great. Your kingdom will end. He had already received a dream like that in chapter 2, but he did not receive it. Remember, we are fast-forwarding about 30 years from chapter 3, so the events of chapter 3 are 30 years in the rearview mirror, and Daniel is probably around 50. He's close to 50 years old at this time. King Nebuchadnezzar received the dream. Daniel interpreted the dream, and he told the king, as we ended last week, my recommendation to you, my advice to you, king, repent. And if you do, these things might not happen to you. But if you do not, this is what's going to happen. The punishment and the penalty and the discipline for your pride. That left us asking the question last week, what will Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, let's read it together and find out. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All of these things reached Nebuchadnezzar the king. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he said, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said the kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and he gives it to whomever he wishes. 
Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge or my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward his hand away or strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my knowledge returned to me. And my majesty and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my high officials and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my kingdom. And extraordinary greatness was added to me. And now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. These are the words of the living God. And as we go before him in prayer, let's ask him to write the eternal truths that are here in this text upon our hearts this morning. Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity, the privilege of being able to open your word. So many places around the world can't even do this without fear of being killed, being persecuted. Some people groups in the world don't even have a copy of the Bible in their own language. What a privilege we take for granted. And then even as we come to this account, we, we are familiar with the story. We know the story. And so there is an aspect of familiarity, familiarity breeding contempt in our minds and our hearts and our affections such that we see this, we read it, we know it. And we, so, we so quickly move on. We, we can so quickly, so easily move on. I, I pray that that would not be so today that we would stop in this moment, that we would read these words anew and afresh. Let them affect us. We are all more prideful than we think we are. Level us in humility this morning so that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have to happen to us. But Father, I pray that if we would remain stubborn in our pride, you would do this gracious work of humiliating us to bring us to a place where we would call out your name, call upon you as our king, and submit ourselves to you. We are all in various stages of this pathway, of this progression from pride to humility. So speak to us now. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We love you and we're so thankful to be here together to open your word. What a precious moment this is. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. As we conclude Daniel chapter 4, we are going to see in this text five realities about who God is and about who we are. Five varying realities about who God is and about who we are. And the very first one comes right at the beginning in verses 28 and 29. All of these things, the interpretation of the dream, the advice that Daniel gave, reached Nebuchadnezzar the king, and at the end of 12 months... He's walking on the roof and these things happened. Twelve months. Reality number one about who God is. God is a patient God. He is patient with sinners. God is patient with sinners. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, you know it. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the severity of God that leads us to repentance. God's severity in judgment, yes, it gets our attention, but it doesn't lead us to repentance. You cannot get scared into heaven. And so here, God in his kindness is letting Nebuchadnezzar not experience the full effect. He's giving him time. He's giving him patience. He's giving with long-suffering grace. Why? It's because mercy loves delays. Mercy loves delays. And if our God is merciful and he loves delays, then we too should love them as well. We should be so careful 
with making a verdict about someone else, we should be so cautious and compassionate. God is patient with sinners. 12 months. We don't know if Nebuchadnezzar repented. We don't know if that's why this is uh, the waiting period. Maybe it is. Even so, it's still patient of God to wait. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar didn't change a thing. Maybe he is still prideful in his mind and in his heart, and God is just gracious and patient. Either way, at the end of the 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Remember, we talked about some of these palaces last week. There were three palaces that he built, one of which had the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar had also built 53 temples. He's built a lot of things, and here he's standing on one of his palaces on the roof. Reminds me of David, right? While he's on the roof looking out. I think the moral of the story here, you can write it in your Bible, just don't walk on your roof. Bad idea, bad things happen, nothing good ever comes from walking on your roof. And so here, while he's on his roof, he's going to say something that's going to give us reality number two. Reality number one, God is patient with sinners. Reality number two, we are prideful to the core. We are prideful to the core. This is verse 30. As he's walking around on his roof, the king answers and he says, is this not Babylon the great? He's speaking to himself. He's talking to himself, reminiscent of that Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke who looks up to heaven and says, how awesome am I? And he says, I have built this as a royal house by the strength of my power for the glory of my majesty. If Nebuchadnezzar had turned in some small form of repentance, obviously it didn't last because at the end of these 12 months, his pride emerges. Pride always finds its voice. You can try to shove it down in your heart as long as possible, but your pride and my pride, because we are so prideful, it will eventually come out at some point. And what he's saying is, I did all of this. I did everything. Look at how awesome I am. One of the aspects of our pride is that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, we think that we are responsible for everything that we do and achieve. We don't recognize that the the achievements that we have are only possible through God giving us the gift of being able to do those things. God has given the ability to achieve. If you are an amazing athlete and you do some amazing athletic accomplishment, that's great, but God is the one who gave you in your DNA the ability to grow muscles and have the ability to do that crazy athletic achievement. One commentator says it this way, talent, brains, and opportunity mean absolutely nothing apart from God's provision. So we glory in our abilities, but the reality is if you've done something that's amazing, It's only because God enabled you to do that. Just think of all the things that had to happen to get you to a place where you could even do what you're praising yourself for. Just start with where you were born. Where you were born and the family you were born to enabled you to get to a place to where you are, to that accomplishment and that achievement where you say, look at how awesome I am. You and I didn't choose where we were born. That's a gracious gift of God to choose that on our behalf. So Nebuchadnezzar says, look at what I've done. And I've done it, two things, by my strength and for the glory of my majesty. This is the essence of pride. Pride can be summed up in those two words, by and for. By my power, for my glory. That's the slogan of pride. Pride says, look at what I've done, by my power, for my glory. Look at what I've done, by my power. I thought of the walls, I thought of the aqueduct, I thought of the hanging gardens, I thought of the colors that I wanted to surround the building. I thought of all those things. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't have that taste bud still lingering in their soul. There isn't a person here who doesn't still think, look at what I've done by my power. Look at what I've done by my ability, my accomplishments. And I've done it for my glory. I want to receive praise for my great accomplishments, for my achievements. I need the approval of others, and I want to be lifted up by them and noticed by them. I want their admiration and their praise. I want to be glorified by my ability, my power, for my glory, by and for. And you might be here this morning, you might say, well, I don't really have a by and for in my life because I really haven't done anything. I I look around in my life and I go, there's nothing really special that I've done. You're not outside of this equation just because you can't see something special in your life that you've done. If you don't have accomplishments, my guess is you probably wish you did. And so there's still an aspect of pride in your own heart that says, I want that and I'm sad that I don't have it. 
The bottom line is, if you are strong, strong people tend to not believe that the grace of God is needed. I've got this on my own. I'm able on my own. And weak people tend to not believe that the grace of God is sufficient. Not physically weak, but spiritually, emotionally, ability-wise. The bottom line is it's the same disease with different symptoms because pride is a universal disease. We are all so prideful to the core. And we can say without a shadow of doubt or uncertainty, we are all more prideful than we think we are. We all overestimate our humility and underestimate our sinfulness. So this text teaches us that we are actually way more prideful than we think. Reality number three is God's promises will come to pass. Number one, God is patient. Number two, we are way more prideful than we think. We are prideful to the core. Number three, God's promises will come to pass. This is verse 31 and 32. While the word is still in the king's mouth, as he's saying the last words, a voice butts in. It kind of cuts him off and says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said, the kingdom has been removed from you. This is what God had promised through the dream. If you do not repent, your pride will destroy you and I will remove you and throw you out to be a beast in the field. And lo and behold, God's word comes true. God is faithful. He had promised that this would happen and since Nebuchadnezzar didn't repent, it happened. Verse 32, you'll be driven away from mankind. Your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time. I believe that that seven years will pass over you until you know, until you recognize, until you reason in your mind and your heart that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and he gives it to whomever he wishes. Most High, used six times in this chapter and it's never been used before in the book of Daniel. That's the whole point of Daniel 4. We need to get the concept and the understanding and functionally live out that God is God and we are not. As one author put it, in his pride, the king took, him, took for himself the glory that rightly belongs to God and invited divine judgment. C.S. Lewis says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You're not going to be looking at God and glorifying him if you're looking down on everyone else. And since we become like what we worship, if in our beastly pride we're looking down on people, then we will become beastly. And that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He actually becomes animalistic. This is that psychological condition that we talked about the last two weeks. Lycanthropy, it's a condition where you think psychologically that you are an animal. More technically, he would have something called boanthropy because he thinks that he's a cow. He thinks he's cattle. And there's so many different accounts of this actually happening in um, institutions where people have been able to see and interview people that have gone through these things. The bottom line is the superhuman man becomes subhuman. And he goes out and he eats grass and he drinks from mud puddles. In Iraq, where this is taking place, it can easily get to 110 to 120 degrees in the summer and below freezing in the winter. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to survive out in the wilderness by himself. Sinclair Ferguson says, the one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly. Imagine what the leaders would have thought in Babylon. Uh-oh, we've got a serious problem. Our king just ran out and he's eating grass. <laughs> what do we do now? Historically, we are told that his son was placed as king in the interim while uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was in this period of insanity. There's actually two extra-biblical sources that tell us that this took place, that this happened. While the king was absent, they, they talk about in these two extra-biblical sources, they talk about a vision that he had and then a, a living out of that vision. And it lasted for seven years. Just think about that. Seven years. What were you doing seven years ago? That's a long time. Seven years that he's going to be out in the wilderness to live out his insanity. God said it would happen. And it happened. God's word will always come to pass. God is a faithful God and his promises will always 
take place. Number four, fourth reality. Our pride will always be punished. Our pride will always be punished. Just listen. You can write these down. We don't have to turn there. Just listen. I want to read a a number of verses. I'll give you the reference. I'll read it. Just listen to how much God detests pride. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a prideful spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Psalm 10, verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. That's what pride does. Pride says, I'm God, God isn't in existence. I am God. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. What is happening in these verses is a living out of what happens when we in our pride exalt ourselves. God is opposed to you if you are prideful. God has a target that's focused on you if you are prideful. God has, I've heard it said, two plans. Plan A is you humble yourself and he exalts you, right? James chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 5. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. If you depend on him and put yourself under his authority and glory in his sovereignty, God will exalt you. Plan A, if you do not humble yourself but you exalt yourself, God will humiliate you. God will bring you low. Our pride demands punishment. And what's happening here in this text is a visual demonstration of how bad the sin of pride actually is. Sin wrecks your life. It makes you animalistic. It turns you into an animal. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I was like a beast before you in my sin. Sin makes you ignorant of your surroundings, ignorant of the consequences of your actions. It makes you live based solely on your impulses and instincts. It makes you animalistic. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, those who live according to the flesh are like animals. Why? Because they lack self-control. Sin erodes your connection between cause and effect, and it makes you think so lowly and animalistically. Isaiah chapter 7, Ephraim is compared to a dove because it, it runs away so quickly at the sign of danger instead of trusting the Lord. False teachers are compared to dogs. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says greed makes you like a lion. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says that the hypocrites are like vipers. Sin makes you beastly. And this is the grace of God to grab Nebuchadnezzar and say, you need to get this before you die. You need to understand this before it's too late. Learn this now. We might look at this and say, this is so harsh to Nebuchadnezzar, which number one is a a telling of how little we think of sin. This isn't harsh. Nebuchadnezzar should be destroyed right now, but instead God's giving him an opportunity to repent by saying, I'm not going to kill you and destroy you. I'm going to help you to learn your lesson. Learn this lesson now before it's too late. This is the grace of God. This is the disciplining hand of God on Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is his love on display, pressing Nebuchadnezzar into that valley of humiliation. And my question to you this morning is, where are you in your understanding of pride and humility? Because maybe God has brought you here this morning to hear this message because you right now are in that valley of humiliation. Maybe God has his hand heavy upon you, like the psalmist says, uh, when day and night I would not confess my sin before you and therefore your hand was heavy on me. Maybe you're here this morning and God has his hand of heavy discipline over you, bringing you through that valley of humiliation. Don't kick against that. Learn the lessons that God has for you in these moments and say, God, help me, grow me, teach me, and strengthen me and humble me. It's a long way from being the king of Babylon to being a beast in the field. And that's because pride is beastly. When you try to become like God, you become beastly. 
God, in essence, is saying, you're acting like a beast. I will make you a beast. But don't detour from this valley of humiliation. If you're in this valley right now, if, if God is doing something to grab attention, you grab your attention, grab a hold of you, don't detour out of this. Learn the lesson. We want to get out so fast. Don't do that. Learn the lesson. Nebuchadnezzar is driven out. Seven periods of time pass over him. His body, verse 33, is drenched with the dew of heaven. He's eating grass. His hair grows like eagle's feathers. His nail like bird's claws. This is the punishment for pride and the discipline against our defiance. But the story doesn't end there. We see that God is patient towards sinners. We see that we are prideful to the core. We see that God is faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. And we see that our pride must be punished. It will be punished. But the story doesn't end there. Praise the Lord the story doesn't end there. Reality number five, God's purpose in discipline is redemptive praise. God's purpose in discipline is redemptive praise. If all he wanted to do to Nebuchadnezzar was punish him, he would have just destroyed him. But God's purpose is not, I want to destroy you. No, God's purpose is redemption, reconciliation, repentance, restoration. That's what the Bible says about our God and the character of our God. He does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, trusting in him alone for salvation. And so here, in the end of chapter 4, we have a, a gracious glimpse of Nebuchadnezzar saying, I've learned the lesson. I will humble myself before the Lord and trust in him and praise him. He says, verse 34, and this is, Verse 34 through the end of the chapter. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, it's as if somebody took the pen for him and wrote verses 28 through 33 because he had gone insane. But now he says, can I have the pen back? Because I have something I need to say. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven and my knowledge returned to me or my reason returned to me. Sounds so similar, almost identical to the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son goes away from his father, demands all the, the inheritance that is due to him from his father, runs away to that far country, squanders it all with loose living, wanton living, uh, prodigal living, all that, that um, just destructive, uh, destructive behavior, that sinful behavior. And then in that pigsty, he says... How many of my father's servants can eat whatever food they want? And I'm here starving and I cannot even eat. And the reason returns and it says he came to his senses and he returns to his father. Nebuchadnezzar is going through that moment right here, right before our very eyes. His reason is returning. By the way, that tells you that pride is unreasonable. Pride is irrational. His reasons are turning because in his pride he was irrational. He was unreasonable. And so he begins to praise the Lord. My Bible puts it into a poetic stanza because he's singing. It's praise. What is the opposite? The biblical opposite of pride. What's the biblical opposite of pride? We would tend to say humility. And yes, that's true. But I think the biblical opposite of pride, especially seen here in these verses, is praise. The biblical opposite of pride is not saying, okay, I'll be humble. It's saying, I will glory in my dependence upon the Lord. I will glory in the reality that I can't do anything on my own. It's not saying, I can't do anything on my own. It's saying, I'm glad I can't do anything on my own. It's praising the Lord. The opposite of pride is praise. So there's two things that are happening here in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his heart. Number one, there's an intellectual revolution. As he's coming up out of the valley of humiliation, all of his dependence on himself turns to depending on God. But number two, it doesn't just stop there. There's an, affection, an affectional revolution. He doesn't just learn these realities in his head. He's praising God for it. There's joy in his intellectual discovery. There's a reality here in this text that just hit home to me as I was studying. People who want to talk about the sovereignty of God as a doctrinal issue, and they just want to discuss it without praise on their lips and joy in their hearts, people like that make me nervous. Crossing your theological T's and dotting your theological I's without any sense of wonder and no sense of worship over those theological issues. 
That's what we say all the time when we're giving out the book, Seeing and Saving Jesus Christ. We're not about growing our head knowledge. We don't want to just see Jesus in the scripture and say, I know more. We want to love him more. And if our intellectual understanding does not grow into affection, something is terribly wrong. Nebuchadnezzar would say this morning, don't just ponder the sovereignty of God. Don't just memorize verses that can tell you he is God, he is sovereign, and you're not. No, praise the sovereignty of God. Glory in the sovereignty of God. Love the sovereignty of God. Where are you this morning in that? Where, where do you tend to find yourself? Do you find yourself loving the Lord without any deep theological backing and foundation? Or do you find yourself with a deep theological backing and foundation that doesn't exert itself in praise and adoration and love for the Lord? We say it a lot at CBC. We do not want empty-headed emotionalism. We also don't want empty-hearted intellectualism. Both of those are equally bad. And I think if we would be honest in our circles, we would tend to be the intellectual, academic, talk about doctrine and theology. But if somebody came to our church and said, do you love that? I know that you know those things, but do you love those things? Would they see the love that we have for those realities on our faces? Would they hear the love that we have for those doctrinal realities in our speech, in our conversation, in our fellowship? Would they see it lived out with one another? We don't want to be empty-headed emotional, but we also don't want empty-hearted intellectualism. So Nebuchadnezzar marries both. Blown away by God's sovereignty intellectually understanding it, but then emotionally and affectionately living it out and praising the Lord, he praises God for 10 things. And if you don't write all these down, totally fine, because I'm going to fly through them. You can see them in the text. He's just going to take the pen up and praise God for 10 things. Number one, he's the most high. I blessed the most high. El Elyon. He's praising God because God is sovereign. God's greatness is worthy of worship. Number two, he praises God because he lives forever. He's praising God for his eternality. He praised and honored him, end of verse 34, middle of verse 34, who lives forever. Number three, he praises God because his dominion is everlasting. God's sovereignty never ends. He's praising the Lord that his sovereignty never ends. Number four, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. End of verse 34. We worship a king who will always be king. Nebuchadnezzar says, my kingdom will end, your kingdom will never end. I love the way Dale Ralph Davis says it. In his commentary on Daniel, he says, human governments are interim arrangements that God appoints to fill space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom. <laughs> I love that. God knows these kingdoms on earth are going to fail. And so he's just putting interim kingdoms to accomplish his purpose until he can establish Jesus' kingdom for all eternity. Number five, Nebuchadnezzar praises the Lord because the inhabitants are nothing before him. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is God's unstoppable power. Very reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. What does this mean? <laughs> Some people could take offense at this and say, God, you're saying I'm a nothing? No, he loves you. He died for you. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is this. What does it mean to be less than nothing? Here's the point. If every human being on this planet were to join forces, contribute all of their wealth, all of their resources, and focus all of their collective power against God to unseat God. If every person on this planet, everyone who's ever existed and ever will exist, all united together in one great conspiracy to destroy God, it would be as if nothing ever happened to God. His power is unstoppable. All the inhabitants of the earth pull them all together, put all of their resources together to try and fight against God, and it would be as if nothing happened to God. It would be like one ant trying to beat you up, right? You see a little ant on the ground walk towards you, all smug-like, frustrated, angry at you, try to, you know, give you an uppercut in the jaw. You can just, boop, gone. Ant is gone. That's every single human gathered together in all of human history against God. We're, we're nothing. Number six, he praises God because God does according to his will. Verse 35, 
God does according to his will in the host of heaven. His plans are unchangeable. This is uh, said in Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Number seven, he praises God because no one can ward off, of, off his hand or say, what have you done? I love that translation. Some of your Bibles might say, no one can say to him, no one can ward off his hand. Uh, middle of verse 35. Literally, it says in Aramaic, no one can strike his hand, slap his hand. The idea here is kind of an imagery of a parent, maybe uh, slapping a child's hand away. Don't touch that. Nobody can say to God, you shouldn't have touched that. That's wrong of you to do. Nobody plays parent to God, as one commentator says. No one slaps his hand as if he made a mistaken move. Nobody can say to God, what have you done? Nobody can say that effectively to God. Parents, you know that question, right? Your kids get a little bit too quiet in their room, and you wonder, I haven't heard, I haven't heard anything in a while. Let's go check on them. And you open the door, just marker all over the wall, and you just go, what have you done? <laughs> what, what in the world? Nobody can say that to God. Nobody can look at what God's doing and go, what have you done? God's wisdom is unquestionable. Job chapter 40, verse 2, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord answered Job and said, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Nobody can question him successfully. Nobody can argue against God successfully. Number eight, God's mercy and grace are unfathomable. This is verse 36. At that time, my knowledge returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. It would be very easy for God at this point to say, well, good for you, Nebuchadnezzar, that your reason has returned, which, by the way, that's God's gift to Nebuchadnezzar, but good, good for you that you've repented, your reason has returned, good job. But you have shown me by your experience and by the way you lived your life, you've shown me that I cannot give you a lot of glory because you end up taking that to yourself. So therefore, I'll let your kingdom go to somebody else right now. But no, God doesn't do that. God says, you know what? Here, here's your kingdom back. Here, here's more of your kingdom, even surpassing the glory that you had originally. God is so kind. His mercy is so uh, just unfathomable. He says, I'll entrust this to you again. As high officials, as nobles began seeking me out, just imagine, where is he? He was eating grass out there. Where is he? Where's Nebuchadnezzar? Imagine the shower that he had to take after seven years of being out in the field. And he's reestablished in his kingdom. Extraordinary greatness was added to him. He gets his kingdom back, but he doesn't get his pride back because his pride had given way to praise. Number nine, Nebuchadnezzar just praises God because God's salvation is sovereign. God's salvation is sovereign. This is verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven because all of his ways are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. All of his ways are true and I exalt the Lord for it. He says, the king of heaven. It's the only time that this phrase is used in the Old Testament. There's a, a response that Nebuchadnezzar has here. That there's, there's debate on this, of why Nebuchadnezzar is saying what he's saying, how he's saying it. But I think if you look at the words, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now, after everything that's happened, I praise, and that word for praise in Aramaic, these are all participles, praise, exalt, and honor are all participles, and they indicate constant, continual praise of Yahweh. This is now the pattern of Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's why I would say, I think Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm saved. I think he got saved because of this experience. Now, just to be fair, there are commentators out there that don't think he got saved. There's some famous ones. John Calvin does not think Nebuchadnezzar saved. There's a lot of commentators that also do think he got saved. So apparently there's not enough evidence to make a hard and fast decision on it. But I think that he did. Because God's salvation is sovereign, God has graciously given that gift to Nebuchadnezzar, and now it has changed the course and totality of Nebuchadnezzar's life. I think we're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day. Which, by the way, that's staggering to think about. If you have somebody in your life that you think is just, they're too far gone. You've shared the gospel with them so many times, they've rejected you so many times, 
They're hard, their heart is so hard, they just don't, they don't receive the word. And you just, you think that they're hopeless. Obviously, we know the gospel, it's never hopeless. People anywhere can get saved. But maybe functionally, you live out this sense where you think that they're too far gone. What a beautiful text to see a man who is dramatically changed by the grace of God in his life. Just look at what Nebuchadnezzar's gone through. Look at who he has been this entire book from chapter 1 to chapter 4. And yet God doesn't give up on him and we shouldn't give up on the people around us either. Just think about if you had to make up a list in your mind, the most unlikely convert list in the Bible, who would you put in there? Here's my top four. Most unlikely converts. Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, the Syrian general, who you remember, because he had captured a little Jewish girl, she has now the the ability, uh, because she's close to him in proximity and lives in the tent with him, to be able to tell him, your leprosy can be cured by Yahweh. You need to talk to the prophet of Yahweh. I think Manasseh's on that list, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. He's the worst king that Israel ever had. He is awful. Evil through and through. And at the end of his life, he gets saved. Saul, Acts chapter 9, rode to Damascus, persecuted the church, killing Christians, gets saved. And then here, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. I think he is on that list of most unlikely converts, and God saves him. What does it take for a man of Nebuchadnezzar's stature and power to come to know the living God? The answer is a personal crisis. Something devastating. And so my question to you this morning is, are you going through, have you been through, or are you about to go through something that you would call a personal crisis? If you are, you are now in God's university, ready to learn, to grow, and to be more like Jesus when you graduate. So don't leave. Don't get out of it. Don't ditch class. Don't run away. Learn the lessons God has for you. Finally, number 10, Nebuchadnezzar praises the Lord because of all God's works being true. God's works are true. I praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven because all of his works are true. His ways are just. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. The methods with which God does whatever he does are always right. That's what he's saying. God not only does what is right, he is what is right. He is the standard of rightness and truth. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's always his goal. He wants to, as part of being God, your description, your job description of being God is to humble people who walk in pride so that they don't have to go to hell, but that they turn and they spend eternity with you. So at the end of verse 37, when you have been humbled and raised up by the sovereign God, you're going to speak more of him than, than you speak of yourself. God humbles the proud so that they... And the world through them would see and know that God rules and that we are not God. In order to do that, though, your hubris must give way to humility. So we come to the end of chapter 4. We see these five incredible lessons. God, in his stunning grace, is kind and patient with sinners. We are prideful to the core. God's word will never fail. It will always come to pass. Our pride must be punished, but God in his kindness disciplines us in our pride to bring about redemptive, restorative, salvific praise. And as Daniel chapter 4 ends, we see Nebuchadnezzar's final words. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. These are Nebuchadnezzar's final words on the stage of biblical history. He is dead, long gone, and yet the king of the heavens is still on his throne, ruling and reigning in glory and exaltation. That's the whole point of this chapter. We're not amazing. We shouldn't be exalting ourselves because of anything we possess, anything that we've accomplished. God in, in his grace has super exalted one to whom he has given the kingdoms of the world, One who, being in the very form of God, did not take uh, advantage of that equality with God, but emptied himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
By nature, we are all just like Nebuchadnezzar, easily impressed with ourselves, attempting to take complete responsibility for all of our successes. But when you think about it, it is a form of insanity, just like we see lived out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Sanity returns only when we humble ourselves before God and begin to look up to him in humility, dependence, and praise. Our story is Nebuchadnezzar's story. We are him. We're blinded by our pride. We must be humbled to the dust if we're going to be saved. And God must bring us to our senses if anything hopeful and good is going to happen. So let this be twofold for all of us. Number one, a warning. God will do to you what he did to Nebuchadnezzar if you stand in prideful opposition against him. If you raise yourself up, exalt yourself in pride, he will do to you what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. It probably won't look the same, but the principle is still true. He will stand opposed to you and humble you or humiliate you until you come to your senses. And again, that's a gracious gift of the Lord to do that, to bring you to a place of utter humiliation now before you die and it's too late. Let this be a warning to you. But let this also be an encouragement to you. That there is hope. No matter who you are, we are all on this pathway from pride to praise through this valley of humiliation. Every single one of us, this is the path we're going to go through. And either as we walk it and God brings us into humiliation and we learn the lessons he wants us to learn and we walk out the other side in praise, dependence on him, salvation, trusting in him alone, we will walk through that valley of humiliation and end up with praise on our lips and a passion in our hearts for others to know, exalt, and glory in Jesus our Savior. But if you kick against that humiliation, if in your pride and your sin you say, I don't want to learn that lesson, I don't need to learn that lesson, I'm fine being who I am and I don't want to be humbled, then you'll never make it through that valley of humiliation and you will close your eyes in this life and open your eyes in the next life with God fully opposed to you forever in hell. This is the pathway of everyone. And so my question to you, as we see a warning here, but a a beautiful picture of the hope of the gospel, that there is still time. You're here, you're hearing my voice, you're hearing the scriptures. You can turn now, you can repent now. So my question is, where are you on this path? We're all on this path. Where are you on this path? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll end here. Can I show you where all of us need to start today on this path and remain? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on the mountain. He opens his mouth, verse 2, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where we start. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer you, God. I am nothing. There's no way I can save myself. There's no way I could ever be good enough. I have nothing and I am nothing. God says, those people get everything. Blessed are those who mourn. Of course you're going to mourn because you are nothing and you have nothing. You have no goodness to offer God. You have no righteousness to say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. You have nothing. And so you weep and you mourn over your sin in brokenness and humility. God, help me. And God swoops in and comforts you. Blessed are the meek or the lowly. They will inherit the earth. Those who throw pride away and say, I am nothing, I have nothing, I weep over that and I'm broken over that and therefore I'm just going to stay in this state of gentle, meek lowliness. I've got nothing to to prove to anybody. I have no uh, reputation to maintain. I just am a sinner saved by grace. Those people get the whole earth. They inherit everything. And once you realize that you can receive the grace of God through his word and his righteousness being given to you, you hunger and you thirst for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to live for you, God, as you've brought me out of this valley. I want to live for you. I want to praise you. I want to grow in love for you. There's so much more that we can say, but for this morning, kill your pride. 
or it will kill you. Glory in your dependence on God. Praise him, exalt him. Ask him even this morning to help you kill more pride in your heart that you're not even aware of. Ask him to walk you through that valley of humiliation to show you where you need to be more like him. And if you do that, God in his grace, his word will come to pass, and God in his grace will be faithful to walk with you, holding your hand, teaching you, leading you, loving you, guiding you, and bringing you to a place of praising him that he is the most high God and in kindness he has loved us with a lavish, rich love through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the account of Nebuchadnezzar receiving this dream, the account of Nebuchadnezzar being talked to by Daniel and here seeing these realities of who you are and who we are. We come to the end and we, I, I pray, Father, please help us not to look at anyone else or think about anyone else or, or, or try to turn off that inner lawyer that's standing up right now in our heart and saying, you're not as bad as, as uh, the, the word of saying or as Patrick is saying, you're not that bad. God, help us to say, we're, we're actually worse than we think we are. So, Father, humble us. You are the great, most high God in heaven and we are not. So we would ask that you would occupy our lowly, humble, humiliated hearts this morning. Own every part of who we are. Reign over our lives. Functionally, we want to do that in submission to you this morning. Conquer every rebel power that we have inside of our affections that would kick against your sovereignty. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of how we first in being blinded by our sin, had no ears to hear your voice, but you in grace opened up our ears, opened up your word, brought us to our senses so that we could see and savor you. And then help us all in this moment to say, be our help. Help us to live a life dependent on your grace and glorying in that dependence. May we decrease this morning and Christ increase. Even now as we sing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.